Welcome to the Specialty Coffee Podcast by Storyline Coffee Roasters. Today we have an amazing guest on. We have Shelby Williamson, who is the head roaster for Huckleberry Coffee in Denver, Colorado. They are one of the premier Denver coffee roasters. She also is the U.S. roasting champion, and she also has competed as a world barista champ, or excuse me, world roasting champion. Um, and she is a Q grader. She has a wealth of knowledge and experience and has a lot of amazing thoughts about competitions and Q grading and everything like that. So Shelby, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. It's an honor to be chatting with you. I know we have a lot to get into. So tell us just how did you get into specialty coffee? What kind of sparked your interest and, uh, what made you want to stick around through it all? Um, Yeah, so I had kind of a a weird introduction into coffee. I was actually living in uh, Moscow, Russia, Um, just trying to, like, kind of figure out what I wanted to do (laughs) with the rest of my life. Um, I was a teacher there, and uh, it was a great experience. But I was kind of just trying to, you know, ruminate on, like, what do I want to do? And, um, you know, I don't really ever want to work for the weekend. So what, what is going to be my path? And I thought, you know, the one thing that I really can foresee myself doing forever is something that's around uh, a bookshop. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to open a bookshop. And the only way that a bookshop was going to survive is if it had coffee inside of it. And I love coffee too at the point, and it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything to do with specialty coffee. I wasn't even really aware that specialty coffee existed. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know that it was a thing. And um, so when I moved back to the U.S., I was looking for literally any job in coffee that like wasn't Starbucks, because I wanted to, you know, really learn how to yeah. make coffee. And so I applied everywhere, and it turns out that it is really hard to get a job to get into specialty coffee. And I had no idea yeah. that like that was is like three to four years experience. Like, so I just thought that was so strange. And finally, a job opened up at Corvus in Denver, and it was for a production assistant. Um, and I thought, great, that's great. I'll do production for you know six months. I'll try to work my way on bar, and um, you know within a year, I'll probably learn everything that there possibly is to know about coffee. And (laughs) because I was an idiot and little did you know, and uh, I have the great, uh, you know, gift of working with uh, Danielle Mendoza as my head roaster at the time at Corvus. And he and I just became, you know, it was like a house on fire. Like we're just fast friends, super close immediately. And um, and yeah, he was a really great mentor for me, like really sparked my interest in coffee and showed me really the green side and the trading side and the roasting side of coffee. And uh, I never I never got on bar and I just stayed uh, in production because I actually really like production. I think my personality is a little bit more well suited for production. And uh, yeah, I just really fell in love with like roasting and with um with green coffee in general and, and the agriculture side of coffee. Hmm. Yeah. How did, how was it having like a mentor like Danielle in those early days? Um, I've talked with some other people and I feel like that's super formative to someone who steps into roasting is having someone to kind of, 
I don't want to say hold your hand, but kind of guide you through that process and understanding and things like that. So how, how was that kind of experience with him? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's an understatement to say that it was life changing. Like uh, that sounds hmm. extremely dramatic, <laughs> but really for me, it was life changing. Like it, it completely changed the path that I decided to walk. And, um, anybody who knows Danielle, like knows that he's just a very giving person in general for everything, literally everything he gives. And so, you know, I think that what I hear now from a lot of people is like, oh, my head roaster doesn't really teach me how to roast. I'm just a button pusher. They won't tell me like how to roast because they're afraid I'm going to quit and like start my own thing and like blah, 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 blah. And there's this weird Mm. thing where like coffee information is being held really tightly to the chest. And I never once experienced that uh, when I was learning how to roast. And I think that that was probably one of the most important things as far as uh, my development as a coffee roaster is just having someone who is like so open, so anti-secret, so Mm anti-information withholding. Um, And it, it really made literally everything that I did in my coffee career following possible. Like absolutely nothing would have been possible for me without having that very formative experience with Danielle, who now is like, you know, my closest friend. Um, and I'm really lucky to still have him. Uh, and he's, you know, he's exactly the same with everything. He, he gives information very, very freely. Um, and I think I've said this before about Danielle, that it's like, he'll never, ever lie to you. Like he will never mislead you. And He's allowed to be wrong, you know, like he doesn't have all the perfect answers, but he will never lie to you. So I know what Danielle tells me is 100 percent what he believes or or what he has like come to believe. Uh, And his his thoughts are always shifting and evolving and changing. And and that's one of the reasons that I trust him as well is because he is always changing his mind on stuff. He's always finding new information and then giving that information out. And I think that that's what a really good teacher does. Um, is someone right. who takes the information they have and they just give it freely. Yeah. And I think as an industry, I so hope and want that to be what pushes specialty coffee <laughs> forward, right? Because I've come into cultures and environments that are very like off-putting and kind of like, this is what we're doing. These are our secrets. This is our proprietary mm-hmm. information. And it's like, that's not how we progress as an industry. Like how we progress is by sharing, by developing, Mm -hmm. by having these kind of conversations where we discuss things and are wrong and and it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to be opinionated and have thoughts and ideas. But if we're not sharing those and if we're not trying to progress, I think we, we hinder ourselves so much for what is possible to make a really amazing industry thrive and and be what it can be. So for sure. um, And there is no one answer with coffee, right? Like, um, I, I feel like there are a million ways to get to the same finish line. And for other people, Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter that, you know, the coffee is roasted this way or that way. Some people prefer coffee the way that I hate coffee. And that's just how coffee is. It's a very subjective thing. It's very similar to beer where it's like, obviously there are bad brewers out there, right? They make bad beer, but at the end of the day, uh, some of it is preference. Like I love really Mm -hmm. hoppy, um, IPAs. I like them so floral and hoppy and citric. And I like really tart sours that like some people almost can't even stomach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
But for other people, that is yeah. something they're like, they would say, oh, that's a terrible beer. And coffee is exactly the same. It's very subjective. And, right. you know, I think that there are some general guidelines that are like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. That's not best practice. Um, but I also just think that um, it's so subjective that holding secrets is kind of a weird choice for me because the secrets yeah. aren't, they don't really mean anything. It's not like there's one answer. There's no one answer to the test. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating when it comes to roasting, because at the end of the day, like you can, you can always develop and become a better roaster, but at the, but it truly, I think comes down to like, what is your consumer wanting and how am I importing good green? How am I keeping, keeping out of the way of that green and getting the best or the most out of that coffee. And so it's an interesting situation where it's like, how can I become a better roaster? Well, there's lots of tools and techniques mm -hmm. to do that. But at the end of the day, it's not like there's roasters out there that have this secret technology or these secret techniques or mm -hmm. ways that they're doing things that are just totally different. It's just the fact that they're sourcing really high quality green and they're able to then bring that to market. And it's incredible. hundred percent. So. I mean, I, I think, uh, I have a really incredible partnership with Kevin Nealon, who's our green buyer and he does a great job mm. of importing green. That's clean. Um, in fact, I, when I was training my new production roaster, who's never roasted before, uh, we were going over coffee defects and just kind of doing a green defect general class. And, mm. I have a really hard time scrambling up some of the defects for her to look at because we just don't have a lot of them in our coffee, right? So it'd have to be like while I was roasting, right. I would see a full black in a bag and I'd like snatch it out and bring it to her like this yeah. is what it looks like, you know? Um, and so, you know, my job as a roaster is to not mess up the work that Kevin has done in sourcing clean, hmm. clean green. Um, that's kind of how right. I look at it where it's like, yes, I can influence the flavor. Yes. I can over roast it, under roast it, change certain characteristics of the coffee. But at the end of the day, the green coffee is the coffee. The green coffee is the coffee that the mm -hmm. producer processed and took care of. And now our job is to not mess it up. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And how, so you started out at Corvus um, you were an assistant there. Did you step into a bigger role in Corvus's roasting side and then move over to Huckleberry or what was that transition in time? Like? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, th this is kind of like a weird space. Cause you know, you don't, you don't leave companies because you're happy, right? It's very rare that you sure. leave a company because you're happy. Um, at this point in time. And again, I haven't, I haven't been there for a very long time. So, um, I was being pretty brutally underpaid. Um, Danielle was teaching me to sample roast. He was giving me more than he needed to. He didn't need to teach me any of these things. I had just started sure. roasting. And uh, right around the time that I started, you know, doing a little bit of production roasting, there was, um, I don't know, some complaint from a wholesale customer, which we get all the time. That's just kind of how roasting goes. Um, and, right. uh, the owner told Danielle to take me off the roaster. Uh, and so that, I mean, that's pretty, you know, I had only been on there for like a little while, you know? So for me, that was pretty, uh, heartbreaking because I'd finally gotten somewhere that I really wanted to be. And then, sure. um, after that happened, uh, you know, morale for that job was pretty low. Uh, I think for Danielle and I both, we just didn't want to be there anymore. 
and uh, a job opened up in a roastery in um, Boulder uh, for a roaster. <laughs> and Danielle was like, you should take it. You should take this job. I'll recommend you. You should get out of here. And I did. Uh, and that ended up being a really great experience. I had a lot more freedom. Uh, it was uh, a place that, you know, really needed someone who was willing to kind of take over the pro- coffee program. Um, I feel like I was probably a little underqualified when I started there just because I really didn't have that much roasting sure. experience. I had a lot of sample roasting experience. But as far as production roasting, I really didn't have that much Um but uh, I ended up taking that job, and it was a great experience for me. Um, and it was, you know, it was a step in, uh, up in every single direction. It was better pay. It was better working conditions. It was um, better community at that shop. Um, and then uh, after a couple of years there, uh, a position opened up at Huckleberry. And uh, I was driving back and forth from Denver all the time, and it was just kind of a lot for me. Uh, and so then I ended up... Um, taking the job at Huckleberry because it was just, again, another step up. It was better pay. It was better benefits. It was better everything closer to my home. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's kind of how I got to Huck. That's awesome. Yeah, how how is it like – I think I have a similar experience with learning to roast in that, like, Daniel, I learned from a lot of people – but I feel like when it comes to roasting, this is just my personal experience. You just learn by doing mm-hmm. it. Like the more you do it, the better you get, the more you understand. And as long as you're cupping and tasting the coffees you're roasting and getting good data from your roast, you can kind of start to understand like, okay, I want it to taste like this. What do I need to do to get it there? Or like, this is tasting a little off. What can I do to change that? You know, I think a lot of it, I get asked a lot, like, well, what do I need to do? What classes should I take? What things, books should I read? And I'm like, I think you just need to Mm -hmm. roast more sometimes, right? Like there's a lot that can be learned and gleaned. And so now that you're kind of teaching others how to roast, what did you gather from those early days where you were kind of maybe underqualified and just thrust into an awesome position where you could learn and have the freedom to do so? Um, what did you glean from that to then be able to teach other people how to roast? Um, one, I think it's really important to give people the space to mess up a lot of coffee. So that's number one. Uh, obviously, at smaller roasteries, that's a hard one to give up because it's expensive. It's really expensive. Uh, at mm-hmm. Huckleberry, we have a lot of avenues that we can kind of put coffee that's like maybe not um, perfectly to spec as far as that profile. But hey, you know what? We can put it into cold brew and it's totally fine. Right. Um, we're very fortunate in that we have the volume to be able to do that. And like our cold brew tastes great. It's not like the coffee is bad. It's just not perfect. Right. Um, so I think right. that one, getting people the space to make mistakes is really, really important because they're going to make mistakes, whether it's roasting mistakes or machine operation mistakes, they are going to make mistakes. And if you make every mistake live or die, it is so stressful. It is so stressful. Yeah. <laughs> And they are not going to learn well in yeah. that environment. So I think that that's the number one thing is that when you're training a new roaster, just expect to make mistakes. Tell them before they start roasting, you're going to make mistakes. I expect you to make mistakes. Mistakes are okay. Obviously, we want to limit those mistakes, but mistakes are okay. Right. Okay. The only thing that I want you to think about mistakes is that you have now learned something and we're moving forward from that mistake. Um, I think that that's number mm-hmm. one. Um Number two, I think I'm a big believer that roasting is very much so like cooking. Um, Hmm. 
There is nobody who walks into a kitchen and is just like, I'm an intuitive master chef. I know how to do everything. Uh, every master chef that I know who is, you know, very, very good at their craft is someone who started with a cookbook or they started with a relative or someone who basically was like, you are going to cook my way. And then they learn that mm -hmm. from 20 different people and they bring all of that experience into a new product. So for me teaching a new roaster, I was like, day one, you're on the roaster. You're on the roaster. I'm going to stand next to you. I'm going to roast a batch. You're going to watch. Next, ro next roast, mm -hmm. you're going to control one thing. Maybe that one thing is the gas, right? I'll control everything else. I'll right. do the computer work. I'll do everything else. Your job is to control the gas. Great. The next one, you're controlling the gas and the airflow. Okay, the next roast, you're going to be controlling the gas, the airflow, and the computer. All right. Now we're going to add in... Uh, taking, you know, moisture loss and samples and things like that and get that flow going. I have found that that structure for me is the best for teaching. You don't want to overload somebody with too much information. Um, our brains are not meant to take in that high level of information all at once, especially when it's a physical task, because with all physical tasks, yeah. there's muscle memory, right? So, I mean, Kiera, uh, my production roaster, I got her on the roaster first day, and I probably stood next to her for two weeks. Um, yeah. and, and towards really the last week, I was there just in case something happened. Power went out, something weird happened. Yeah. You get her to be able to follow a profile, and that's, that's the first step to learning how to roast, is following a profile on a manual roaster. So it's like she's learning how to roast on this machine and this machine alone. We're using this as an example of, you know, I'm talking to her about heat transfer while it's happening. So she has a real life experience right. to it. I started out reading a bunch of books and that was really hard because when you don't actually have the concept of what what is my yard? What is that? You have no idea. It's so hard Yep. to conceptualize something that you don't understand. So I think having her experience roasting through like a very controlled sense and then go back and I would assign her like one chapter from one of the many books that I have on roasting and then we would talk about it and we would talk about what do I agree with that? What don't I agree with that? Here's why I don't do that or here's why I do do that. Um, I try to make it very much so like progressive learning versus just an information download into her brain. <laughs> um, and to yeah. be honest, it seems to be working really well. Like she's, she picked it up very quickly. She's cupping really strongly. Uh, she's very opinionated on the cupping table, which is great. I told her day one, if you don't taste it, don't say it. Like that's very, very yeah. important with quality control. Do not worry about keeping up with me and Kevin. Me and Kevin have been cupping for eight years. Like our palates are, right. are very calibrated and they're very um, uh, evolved just because we do it so much. Um, yep. I was like, you'll get there in six months. It won't take you that long. She's already picked up everything. She can pick up defects. She can pick up all kinds of stuff. And, um, and you know, it's the same thing. We hit a defect on the table. We push the cup back and we tell her, you need to taste this. This is what this defect is. This is why that happens. Here's what that means for us as a company. Here's what that means for us on a buying table. So it's like just really taking every moment that you physically can 
to teach the person you're supposed to be teaching um, is really important. Like I changed out a gear uh, on the cooling bin of the Geeson and um, I, I could do it alone, but I was like, it's more important that you and I do this together so that you see what's happening and you get a better understanding of how this machine works. So I think that that's, that's, yeah, that's my philosophy is that um, learn by doing and then just taking every single moment that you physically can that is a teachable moment to teach someone. We had the power go out. And then her and I had a very long conversation about protocol when the power goes out and what that means. And like, here's, here's what can happen if you don't do that. Right. And, uh, and right. those are all really important. Totally. What are there books that you tend to lean on when informing someone, if there's someone that's wanting to get into roasting or wanting to learn about it, Maybe they got a bullet roaster or a variety of the air poppers or things that are out there. Is there a book that you would recommend them to kind of lean on or look to for some good information that then they can kind of um, get actual knowledge on that they can lean from from the um, book? Well, I mean, I think that the two most popular books are obviously uh, Rob Hoos's book. Uh, I think it's called Flavor Modulation in Coffee or Coffee Flavor Modulation. I can't remember. Um, sorry, Rob. <laughs> yeah, modulating the flavor profile. And, uh, yeah. and then Rob, uh, and then Scott Rao's book, um, uh, just the little coffee roasters guide. Um, and it's actually not because yeah. I agree with everything in, in those books. I think that one of the most important things that you can glean from that book is that everybody in the roasting community kind of reads those two books. And so at the very least, mm -hmm. you can start speaking the same language or, um, you know, when someone says, well, you know, the rate arise, blah, 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 it needs to be this way. We know exactly where that's coming from. And we can talk about, like, why do we agree with that? Why don't we agree with that? Um, and so for me, those books, while they I think that they both have great information inside of them, I don't entirely agree with a lot of what's in those books. Um uh, at least not all the time. And uh, I think that it's good to read them and, and put them in there, not as law. Like for Kiera, I was like, great, you're going to read the conversation about, or sorry, the chapter about um, different types of heat transfer. And then you and I are going to talk about them and you mm -hmm. and I are going to go stand at the roaster and we're going to talk about how those heat transfers operate and move through this roaster specifically. And we're going to talk about how you can manipulate those heat transfers to achieve your end goal. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I think at first books are not helpful, to be honest. Um, I, I think that yeah. the best thing that you could do is identify a roaster that you really like. If you're someone who's just like roasting, you know, like out in the wild <laughs> as like a home roaster or something, uh, the best thing that you can do is identify a, a roastery that you really like. And try to get in contact with their head roaster and just see if they'll have a conversation with you about, about roasting because everybody does things differently, right? Um, like I could give you parameters okay. that could get you in a spot around where I roast within, you know, 10 minutes. It's, I have, I have very strict parameters that I roast stuff inside of. And I think that, um, conversations with other roasters who have practical knowledge versus, uh, books that have a lot of, um, technical jargon that especially home roasters are probably not really ready for, um, is, is more yeah. helpful than that. 
and cupping. Cupping is the most important thing when you're when you're learning how to roast. Yeah. How so? You're a Q grader. Um, talk about your thoughts around Q grading and cupping and the importance of cupping to improve not only your palate, but just the quality of your roasting and things like that. Cupping is the most important thing that you can do as a roastery. Um, the minute that you stop cupping, your quality will suffer. Uh, you, I know that a lot of people say you don't have to cup every roast or you don't have to cup every day. We cup pretty much every roast. We cup pretty much every day. And, um, you know, it is a lot of time and it's a big investment, but it also kind of gives us a really good idea of how the green coffee in our warehouse is doing, as well as how well are we as roasters hitting the mark. Um, and also we roast on two different machines at Huckleberry and we try to profile match between the two. So I think there's always an mm. ongoing conversation of how similar are these two coffees? How similar is the geese into the Loring? How can we get them more in spec? What's missing from this coffee that needs to be in this coffee? Um, so, yeah, I mean, cupping is so important. And I think that, you know, Q grading is is one of those things that I have really mixed feelings on. On the one hand, I'm really glad that I did it. Um, I'm really glad that I, I passed and that I didn't waste my company's money. Um, but I'm also um, pretty mixed because it's extremely expensive. It is almost, um, I mean, man, I think that I paid a couple thousand dollars to go take that course. And, uh, yeah. and then I also had to travel for it. So that was another thousand dollars. You know, it's, it's very, very expensive, um, which makes it inaccessible. Um, it's, it's one of the few higher education things that we have for coffee in the United States. And, uh, and it's almost unattainable for everybody. So that's a big problem for me. There's also a very large conversation about power structure between the Q grader and, um, and people who are at origin. Since it is so expensive, mm. it's not really something that's very attainable. There are also very few Q certification classes in South America for, um, for producers. And then on top of that, like what ends up happening is that people who have Q grader, degrees or I don't know certificates from uh from sure. importers or roasteries are then taking that Q certification giving it a Q grade and that directly affects the price of coffee so yeah. there is a weird power structure that's happening I think for most people in the United States Q grader is kind of like a, a feather in your cap to kind of be like hey I did it I was able to pass the Q um but I mean mm -hmm. now it used to be every three years you had to redo the Q and it's not cheap it's very, very expensive yet again. Uh, and now they've just added another level that you have to like buy a calibration kit every single year and then also do the three year calibration. So at this point, um, honestly, I'm probably going to let my queue expire. I, I have no yeah. need to hold that certification for, for my ego and I have no need to use it for my job. Like my job doesn't require a queue certification. Right. And I know I can pass a Q class, so I'm not really totally concerned with uh, with keeping that up. Yeah, how speaking on cupping scores from Origin and things like that, how I feel like it's one of those necessary evils that we have in our industry, mm -hmm. right? I mean, 
it's a good qualitative way to assess a coffee because without qualitative measures, it's hard to say this is this coffee is better than that coffee. But like we talked about initially, coffee is so subjective, mm-hmm. right? Like what I like in my beers may be totally different from what you like. And same thing with coffee. Like I may like a really acidic, bright lemon drop coffee and you may like something that's more juicy and well-rounded and has more body to it. And there's, that's not wrong, right? Like both, both of those coffees could be amazing. So how do we, how do we subjectively understand that the price of coffee is so tied to cupping scores and there's so much weight on that? Oh, I mean, that's, that's a really big can of worms because, uh, there are a few things that I think are important to think about when we're talking about coffee pricing, right? One of them is I, I really wish that um, there would be more attention paid to cost of production. So that's number one. I think hmm. that uh, it's very strange that uh, producers, not all producers, but some producers have very little say in what their coffee costs, right? Like they show up to an importer, right. they give them their sample, they mill that sample and they tell them, great, between the parchment loss and the defects that we're going to mill out, here is your green quality score, not the cupping score, but just the green quality score, which means that your base pay is this, right? The problem with that is that that price might not cover cost of production. It is one of the few places that I've ever seen that somebody creates a good, they bring it to market, and the market tells them what it's worth. It's so odd to me. And I don't really know, like the whole system is built around this. So I don't really know how you change that, um, you know, without being able to just like destroy the entire system. And, uh, and maybe that's what needs to happen, but I'm, I'm definitely in no place or, um, of the education level to be able to do anything like that. But You know, like, I I think a great example is, okay, so, like, we buy coffee, right? We buy it for a certain price. We go, great, it costs this much. We're going to lose this much moisture. It's going to cost us this much in labor. It's going to cost us this much in packaging. And we want to make this percentage margin because that's what we need for healthy um, growth, reinvestment, uh, employee Mm -hmm. benefits, et cetera, right? So then we charge that much. Right. And that's that's how business works. But for them, that is not how it works. They bring a good to market and the market tells them what it's worth. And that is, uh, I would say, one of the biggest problems. Um, There's just a lack of there's a lack of education that happens. There's a lack of not even just education, but like a lack a lack of power given. Where it's like even I, I don't even know if mm-hmm. a, a, a farmer came with their coffee and said, hey, this is an 87 point coffee. <laughs> I think that oh, it's very likely that the importer would be like, great, we'll give you this much for it. <laughs> like, that's nice, yeah, but totally. this is what we'll pay you for it, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's mm-hmm. kind of an odd function of, of that and where totally. where like something like a Q grader course, not necessarily a Q grader course, could be literally anything, just some, some agreed upon standard course that could be made more widely available for less money that could be given to, you know, producers who want it, uh, importers, Mm -hmm. roasters, and make it so that we can all speak the same language, but it doesn't cost us $3,000. Right. 
Yeah, greater sex accessibility uh, to knowledge then improves the overall quality of what we're after. And I'm, I'm curious because I wonder if the broken system that is coffee buying and importing was created around the commodity that was coffee, right? So in a lot of commodities, there's like a world market price that says like corn is worth X amount. And so if you bring us X amount of corn, then that comes into us in that that is coffee. Coffee is a commodity. Coffee has gone so far from that. And I'm curious because I just genuinely don't know, like, is wine the same way? Cause I feel like it can't be right. Like, you know, but it's a similar, it's a similar type market where you have really good vineyards that are doing amazing things in their, you know, processing of the grapes and things like that. And then they're able to get more money for that wine. So it's like, why, why can't we get that with coffee that has come so far from just this commodity based thing that is I mean, I think that the answer to why it can't or why it won't is um, pretty unfortunate in that coffee is predominantly grown in in third and second world countries, right? That's kind of how it is. Mm, Like, it's it's a power structure that's really hard to break down. And I do know of a few importers and producers who are trying really hard to um, to break those um, cycles. But it's it's really hard to do that when you're when you're uh, for lack of a better word exploiting poorer countries or um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's really the answer right like wine is grown in France and California and totally. and all these places yep. that have a little bit more um, leverage I don't want to say necessarily ability I don't think ability is really the right word I think it's leverage. They live in a society that, you know, can demand certain wages, can demand certain things because, you know, the government that they work with or that they live under allows them to do that. And I think that in a lot of countries Mm -hmm. where coffee is farmed, it's something that it's not a it's not a given right, right, to a living wage. And uh, and, you know, that's why you can buy coffee for three dollars per pound. (laughs) Like not, not green, but roasted. That's why you can buy cheap, cheap, cheap coffee. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fascinating. So kind of going, I don't know if we want to go back to it, but your production roaster just took first place in the Denver comp. Uh, so congrats on that. Shout out to you, Kira. Um, how, I don't want to derail us from our cover, the prior conversation, but what was that process like? And um, I watched an interview where she was like, I was voluntold. <laughs> so tell us what that process was like, why maybe she was voluntold uh, to go into the comp and uh, what she obviously yeah, she did really well. Uh, she was 100% voluntold. Um, that that was how I did that, uh, which I get, I, I kind of had to just because she was so new in roasting that like, no roaster with three months of experience is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go compete in the, in the roasting competition. Yeah. Um, right. For me, I think that the best thing that, about competition is that you learn a lot. You learn so much because you have to, right? You have all of these tasks that you have to do, and all of a sudden you're like, well, I actually don't know how to green grade. I don't know how to, to mm. throw coffee through screens, and I don't even know what that means, you know? 
Um, and so for her preliminary, we basically used it as like the final exam of a lot of classes that her and I had been conducting. Um, so we've got a whiteboard in our office and I would basically, okay, we're going to do a lesson on, um, on, you know, flavor compounds that are created and destroyed in the roasting process. And let's talk about what that means and how they're found. And, um, and now we're going to have you apply it to this coffee. Now you're going to go roast this coffee. Right. Um, so, I mean, like when she got her coffee, she was like, okay, so the first thing that I need to do is do a green grading of this coffee. I was like, perfect. That's great. So she did her green grading of that coffee. Mm -hmm. We discussed, okay, here, here are the results of your green grading. Here's everything that I know about that information. And here's like a great, um, concrete example of like what I think about that coffee, what I know about that origin. We are talking specifically about this coffee. And then the next step, she kind of took all that information and she goes, okay, so that means that I need to spend a lot of time sorting this entire 20 pounds of coffee. So that's what she did. She spent, I think she spent like five or six hours just sitting at the table, little bean by bean, green grading entire 20 pounds. But, you know, um, just like many things with coffee roasting, repetition is the best thing that you can do for learning. And so now she's like, oh, yeah, I can identify insect damage. I can identify full sours, full blacks. I can identify wet mill damage, dry mill damage. Like she would show me something, I'd look at it and I'd go, yeah, that's dry mill. Here's how you know that that's dry mill damage. And then we would talk about what is dry milling? What is dry milling damage? Why is that important? How does it affect the cup? Um, and so, yeah, she put in a lot of work in sorting out. I think she sorted out like three or four pounds of her coffee. And then the next thing we did is like, okay, how much coffee do you have left? I have 15 pounds or 16 pounds. And it's like, okay, so you have a few options. <laughs> You can throw that entire yeah. batch in the roaster and just hope that you crush it that first roast. And she was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so you can split yeah. it into five pound roasts and you can just create a five pound roast profile on our 15 kilo geeson and you can do that. So then she ended up doing that. She'd roast one. We'd cup it, evaluate it. She'd make a change to her profile. She'd roast the next one. She, we'd cup it, evaluate it. She'd make one more change to her profile. And then she ended up with her final roast, uh, which she ended up doing a blend between two of her roasts. And it turned out great. So it was like, she did all of the work. I, I did a lot of, uh, I, I was very conscious not to even be on the roasting floor when she was roasting her coffee because I didn't want her to feel like I was watching her and um, make her nervous or anything like that. But also so that this could just be entirely like her thing, right? It's it's her roast, it's her choices, everything is hers on that coffee. You, you just allowed her to do her own thing. Um, what what coffee did she select for that uh, qualifier? Um, and then how how hard is it for someone to who's used to doing fifteen pound you know, batch protocols to then take that to a five pound batch <laughs> and what, like how drastically different um, is that? Well, uh, so the co- the coffee is compulsory. So everybody roasts the exact same coffee, right? Which I love, that's what I love about roasting comps because if you're roasting different coffees, um, 
you it's just a money game at that point that's kind of how i feel about a lot of like brewer's cup and barista where it's like at a certain point once you get past the compulsory phase it's literally just like how much money do you have to spend on coffee and and can you find a good coffee right so that's the part that I, I really yeah. like about the roasting comp is that it's just like, it, here's the same exact coffee. Everybody do what they can to it. Bring it back in. We'll, we'll choose the best one. So um, as far as going from a 15 pound, I mean, we do 20 pounds on the 15 kilo uh, most of the time. That's like our, our standard mm-hmm. batch size. So that was like a great thing that it was like, it's not like she could just take one of my profiles and like basically copy it and just hope that it tastes fine on a different coffee or whatever. Yeah. When you change the batch size, especially so drastically, everything is going to be different, right? The probes are going to read differently. The uh, heat transfer is going to behave differently. Your charge is a different temperature. Your end temperatures will be different. You'll get first crack at a different temperature because the probe, the probe is not really an accurate representation of what's happening in the roaster. The probe is literally just reading the mm-hmm. temperature of the probe. So if you have less coffee touching the right. probe, the probes are going to read lower. So, um, totally. so basically, like I gave her that advice. I was like, "Listen, everything is going to be different, okay? And literally everything. You need to be really cognizant about pulling the trier to make sure that you're not defecting the coffee. You need to be really cognizant of what time you get into yellowing. When do you get first crack?" And when you finish, and then we're going to color read it, and all of that data together, we're going to try to, you're going to try to, like, reorganize your thoughts about how this roaster works now. Because it's a new roaster. Like, you don't know this roaster. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I think that that was totally. probably one of the most valuable experiences that she got in understanding how do you profile a roast on a new machine. Because that's essentially what the Geeson became, was a brand new machine to her. And so uh, she did a really great job of like, you know, we looked over her profiles and she was like, okay, well, I think that I can make a change here so that, you know, rate of rise doesn't drop off and get a little more development here. And um, and she did a great job figuring out how to modulate the rose profile, even though it was a batch size that she was never familiar with. Yeah, which is so challenging to... Yeah, because, I mean, having done, like, when you're used to doing a certain size batch, I've tried it, and it is, it's so challenging because it's just so different, right? Like, you're not getting accurate readings. Things are happening much quicker than you're used to, so you have to adjust accordingly. And so it's just like, you know, it's a it's a beast, especially when you know that you only have so much coffee yeah. to work with, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> there's a lot of pressure that rides on you of, like, all right, just don't let this ride off and, you know, just don't let it rip off and then you, you've lost your coffee. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's fascinating. So she took first in the Denver – she went in straight into the um, qualifier, Yeah, correct? yeah, we couldn't really get her into the prelims. No. no, she didn't do prelims. Um, right. Just, That's I don't right. Right. actually know that she was roasting for me at that point <laughs> when free limbs were going on. Uh, yeah. so she didn't get in there. And, uh, and then I was like, well, I'll just wait until the, uh, the qualifier registration opens. I, I had volleyball practice. I'm a volleyball coach. So I was, I was not, it was like on the weekend when it opened up or something. And so I, I had an alarm on my yeah. watch to let me know like, Hey, it's 10 30 or whatever time it opened at. 
And I just was like, I have to go to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom and I registered her. So I got her in there. Um, but I think that like the most important thing with that was I just basically told her, like, I have zero, zero expectations of you. Like absolutely none, except that you learn. I don't care if you win. I don't care if you take right. dead last. I don't care about any of that. And if you do take dead last, you have three months of roasting experience. Literally no one expects you to know anything. So I was like, just don't worry about like performing well. Don't worry about taking first. Just worry about the big things about coffee roasting. Don't defect the coffee. Don't burn it and learn as much as you can through the process. Those are the three biggest things for me where it's just like, that's, that's going to be our mentality going into the national competition that she's going to be in. It's like, okay, your job is to not burn it, to not underdevelop it. And uh, to make sure that you're within all of your time limits. Those are the things that you really have to care about. Everything else is a shot in the dark right. that you can't control at nationals because you pretty much show up with no information. They give you a sheet to tell you, hey, this is the kind of coffee that you're roasting. You get to sample roast it. You get one practice roast on a different coffee. And then you have to roast your production. Like you're, you're going in completely blind. Um, and so... Uh. Uh, for her, I was just like, the best thing that you can do is just not mess up your coffee. Don't try to do anything magical. Don't try to do yeah. any like crazy tricks. Like at World, some guy tried to roast his coffee entirely by drum speed. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Just just yeah. roast the coffee and don't mess it up. <laughs> yeah, so explain how the U.S. Roasting Championship works. Uh, you obviously won it. Explain what that process was like and uh, your thoughts around competitions on the roasting side of things. So um, with the roasting competition, you basically show up. You have zero information. Uh, you can kind of glean some information about the comp, like what um, uh, what kind of machine are we going to be roasting on. You will get there and they tell you what coffee you're going to be roasting uh, you get to green grade the coffee, and you have to as part of the score. So you green grade, grade a coffee to show, hey, I have adequate green grading skills. Um, you get to sample roast that coffee and taste it. You get to do a practice roast on the production machine. And then you get to do your final roast. You have to write a report that's all about, you know, hey, what, what did you do to this car? What are you going to do to this coffee? How is it going to taste based on your sample roast and what you know about, you know, this coffee? What's your end temperature going to be? How much moisture loss are you going to have? What's the color reading going to be? Um, and you have to do all of that without ever tasting your production roast. Wow. So some of it I do think is luck, right? Um, I calibrated with the uh, color reader before I got there and kind of got an idea of like, okay, like, this roast from my roastery is this color on this. And so when I was doing my production roast practice, I was trying to match this profile as best I could. My first crack finish. And then I color read that and I was like, okay, that's close to this number. So like it's, it feels like a shot in the dark more than anything. Um, but yeah, like the, the U S competition is interesting because it's very different from the world's. And um, the world's competition is, is much more stressful. Um, but the U.S. competition is just one coffee. 
green grade, sample roast, practice roast, production roast, and then it's kind of like typically the best tasting coffee wins because that's going to be your predominant score is like, how does your coffee taste? You know, we don't have presentations. We don't have anything like that, uh, which I think is very fitting for roasters. Roasters are just, they're, you know, solitary creatures by, by nature. And uh, I, it's, it's funny sure. watching like the preliminary presentations because everybody is just so nervous. It's like five minutes, you know, like it's five minutes in front of probably 12 people <laughs> and everybody is stammering yeah. and like some of us are sweating and, and uh, clearly don't like public speaking, stammering, you know, just very nervous. And then you go to like the barista tables, like where they're doing their comp and it's like a stage with like 30 people watching and like everything is very controlled and their voice is very like calm and soothing and the roasters are, are completely uh, opposite to that. Yeah. 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 It's such a, it's such a good image of like who you typically find in back of house yeah. and front of house, right? Like, your barista who's always really chatty and easy to get along with. And you've got the person who's like dialed in with headphones and hyper focused and just like, leave me alone. Yeah. You well, know, it's like, like, it's like if you've ever worked your, in a restaurant, so it's, it's funny when you, yeah. If you've ever worked in a restaurant, that's mm -hmm. exactly how it is. I always think about like that movie waiting. If you've seen that, which is probably extremely problematic mm -hmm. at this point, yeah. I can't remember it, but I'm sure it's terrible. But it's like the front of house is all like very fake, like eyes and teeth. And like, how can I help you? And the back of house is just like dirt bags. <laughs> That's kind of how it feels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not yeah. that we're dirt bags, but we're definitely <laughs> totally. just like no, a little, so little rougher. You know, we work in a warehouse. It's just kind of different. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's a different, it's a different mentality yeah. for sure. What are your thoughts around um, kind of the specialty coffee industry as a whole? Where do you think it's heading? What do you think are some trends that you're seeing? Or what what do you hope to see from specialty coffee kind of moving forward? Um, I mean, I do think that we're kind of on the same track as where beer was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, where there were a couple craft breweries, but it wasn't booming like it is now, especially in Colorado. It's like crazy, crazy booming. Um, but I think that some people, especially consumers, are starting to really get the idea of like, oh, coffee actually has different flavor <laughs> um, because, you know, in the mm -hmm. past, coffee was Folgers, coffee was Maxwell, coffee was McCafe. That's what people think about when it's coffee. It's dark. It's this pretty much the same. Most places that you go, there's some variation in the coffee, but overall it's like the variation is between the roast level and the variation is not between like the origin or the, the general flavor notes or the processing or anything like that. So I think at this point, like consumers are really starting to switch and understand that there is a craft behind coffee. Coffee is not just, you know, um, not just a base commodity. It's not a singular entity. There are just so many different types of coffee. So I'm really excited for that. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of questionability about the long term viability of coffee. Uh, just with the way that climate is going. Uh, I'm not convinced that it'll go all the way away. I think that um, regions will just be shifting. I think that the coffee belt is right. going to shift, and that's going to shift, you know, what's available for, for coffees and 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not overly optimistic as far as like the, the climate, especially when you go to farms and you hear the problems that they're dealing with. And like, you know, some of them are like, oh, yeah, it's getting so cold in the mountains at nighttime that like we're getting frost and that kills the leaves. And then that makes it harder for us to get a high yield and like all these really interesting things. It's like such a delicate ecosystem that creates good coffee. Um, that is, it's starting to change. And so that's kind of interesting. Um, I see a lot of really great, uh, producers experimenting with their coffee processing, which I love. Um, sometimes it produces those really nasty, like vinegar, weird coffees that are just, they're so sour and like mixed with the roast flavor is so weird. Um, and then sometimes they're just literally yeah. like cherry chocolate liqueur and they're delicious. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of growth happening in the coffee industry right now and climate forbidding. We're really headed towards, you know, the specialty beer, craft beer industry style markets where I think that a lot more people are going to be interested in in having specialty coffee in their homes and and really seeking out yeah. unique coffee. Um, and sad to say, but I think that COVID kind of pushed yeah. us in that direction because... You know, everybody who's trapped inside of their home decided, well, I can't go out for coffee anymore. So now mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to buy coffee, good coffee for my home. And that's going to be my treat because, like, I don't have a treat anymore. Right. My treat is gone. Um, right. And so and now that, you know, everything has kind of opened back up, people are like, well, actually, it's kind of nice to have good coffee in my house. I'm going to keep that, <laughs> you know. So I think that to some extent that, right. did, that did help push people in the right direction that. Good coffee, good coffee quality comes from not from the coffee shop, but from the coffee beans, right? Like, and obviously you can brew good coffee poorly, but like it's, it's, if you're not buying good coffee, you can't make good coffee. Yes, correct. Yeah. I think it, it's exciting to me because we're seeing a more accessible ways. Like we're seeing grinders that are like espresso grinders that are dropping in price. We're seeing more at home espresso machines. And so people are hugely getting into the idea that like, wow, I really can have this cafe like experience Mm -hmm. at my house. And I think you're seeing people that kind of are diving into this, this uh, wormhole that is specialty coffee and they're slipping into it, which Mm -hmm. I love. And, and it's exciting because it it allows for more accessibility. And I think as long as we as an industry are able to be welcoming to that and welcome people with open arms, with good education, with good um, – to not come off snobby or off-putting, but instead encouraging and welcoming and having a good community about that, I think we'll continue to progress to where more and more people will start getting into specialty coffee and realize that – the green and the roasted coffee and what I'm putting into my grinder actually does matter. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think that that's a really big problem in the coffee industry in general is being like really, really snobby. Um, and I, that's one of the Mm -hmm. things that I really like about, uh, Huckleberry is that there is a lack of taking ourselves too seriously. Right. Like, that's yeah. kind of our brand is like kind of goofy and like not really taking ourselves too seriously. Yeah. We don't have like the matte black and like try to make everything look really expensive. Like all of our stuff is really colorful and cartoonish and silly and like playful. And, 
And uh, I think that we do a good job of, of having a lineup of coffee for everybody, you know, and um, you're not going to get new people in the door by offering them something entirely different. So, like, for us, we have two coffees that we don't really sell in our shops, um, but it's offered on our website. and We sell them in Whole Foods, and they're a little bit darker. We sell them through trade as well. They're darker. They're Brazil. Uh, one of them is like a rotating Latin coffee, and they're just darker coffees that are definitely not dark by supermarket standards, but they're probably more of like a medium right. medium roast. Um, but it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. because for me, like, do I like roasting those coffees? Do I bring those coffees home? Not necessarily. Like, you know, they're fine. They're fine. Um, but yeah. uh, a lot of people will tell me, like, oh, that's my favorite coffee that you have. And it's like, oh, yeah, probably because you're a dark coffee drinker and this is the closest to specialty Mm -hmm. that you'll get without it being, like, sour or tasting too acidic to you. And it's a really great gateway into the specialty market, getting people to buy coffee that they like that is still sustainably grown, Mm -hmm. purchased, et cetera. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people, especially around Denver, because I think, you know, coffee is this weird industry. We can't help but, like, you know talk talk crap a little bit about everybody i don't know but like i i had a couple friends who were like oh yeah people are saying like oh huck's kind of a sellout because they're doing these coffees and it's like sure i mean like i get it like if you're a little tiny roastery and you don't buy anything like that it totally feels like that but it's like let me tell you about the really cool things about buying those coffees one, we work with an, imp- an importer. Yeah. Like, yes, we buy a lot of Brazil. We buy a lot of Brazilian coffee. It goes into some of our blends, and it goes to our darker trade trade roasts. Um, some of the really great things that we can do is work with this really fantastic importer, BD Imports, who predominantly tries to work with black Brazilians in Brazil who are creating really great products. They're getting fair wage for that coffee. And it's a way for us to pull some of that market away from commercial and give them a sustainably grown, well-roasted, darker coffee that they recognize, that they enjoy, but is a little more in line with our Mm -hmm. coffee purchasing values, right? Um, The other thing is that, like, we sell a lot of it. We sell a lot of it because that's the predominant um, profile of a coffee drinker, right? So what do we do with that money? We pay our people fair wages, like above fair wages. Everybody in our warehouse I know makes over $40,000, whether you pack coffee, brew, cold brew, whatever. You make decent money. You have full yeah. health care benefits. Everybody has time off, time paid sick leave, everything like that. And I, I get that there is this, there is this romantic piece of the small coffee shop. And I respect that and i respect that that's a model that some people really want but as someone who worked at the small romantic coffee shop i was being paid nine dollars an hour without tips without health care and i was working between eight and 15 hours a day so i i get it um Coffee is a craft, but I think that anytime people are really passionate about stuff, they are easily taken advantage of. Um, and so I'm just, I'm not really a big proponent of um, talking about, you know, oh, this person has, you know, these coffees on their skew, blah, blah, blah. This is, they're not good anymore, whatever. It's like, okay, well, look at the big picture. 
Like we're able to buy all these coffees from these people who are fantastic producers um, who maybe don't get the spotlight that they deserve. Uh, we're able to take a chunk out of, yeah, out of the uh, commercial round and get them into specialty a little bit more. Um, and we're able to expand our business while also taking care of our employees, which is the number one thing. Like, I don't want to hear a single thing out of any coffee shop, roastery owner's mouth about relationships with their farmers if they're paying their people below a poverty wage in that city. Like, I that, is, that drives me so crazy when I see stuff about that, like on Instagram. And then I hear from their employees like, oh, yeah, I don't make like any money. Or, like, I'm totally underappreciated there. Everybody hates working there. It just, it crushes me. Like, take care of the people who are in your home. Right. Period. I, I think, I, I love coffee. I, the, the quality of our coffee is very important to me. I spend way too much time on quality control for that not to be important to me. But um, I yeah. actually don't care what your coffee tastes like if you treat your employees like garbage. Like, disposable garbage. So. Totally. I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time. And I, I'm not saying that Huck is perfect by any means. Like, we, we have made mistakes. We're, we're a company made of people who are, you know, trying to figure it out. Um, but, you know, totally. I think that Huck has good faith for the most part and uh, and does a good job of trying to treat its people well and, and do what's best for its employees. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's what... I think going back to beer, right? Like if someone is used to drinking Bud Light and Coors Light all the time and then they try a craft beer for the first time, you don't hand them a, a double no. IPA, <laughs> right? Like they're going to hate it. And that like and not because it's a bad beer, but because they're just not they're never going to jump no. straight to that, right? So you give them a wheat beer and that's great. Like there's really good wheat beers. And I think in the same way like you know, at Storyline, we have a tier one and a tier two coffee. And like our tier ones are like higher cup scores, but also just like higher quality. And our tier two are just more of like your everyday mm -hmm. coffee drinkers. So they're more of that fuller body, darker, chocolatey. And that's a great place to point someone who's like, hey, I drink Folgers. Like, okay, we'll try this. Like, I'm like, oh, wow, like this tastes like, did you add mm -hmm. caramel to it? I'm like, no, it's, no, it's just, just sweet, just naturally sweet. And it's like, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think it's like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, and if people that want like a double fermented or like a honey process, like they're not going to buy it yeah. and that's okay, but it doesn't mean it's a bad coffee. And I want to welcome those two consumers in the same way because that's how we progress. Right. Cause then that person tries a Brazil mm -hmm. natural and it's like, Oh, this is you know, a little different, but it still has that body to back it. And, and I think that's how we progress as a market. And I think, I think as long as we continue to do that well and be welcoming and it's okay to be boutique, it's it okay is. to just do the it's highest totally quality fine. coffees. There's yeah. something wrong with that. I mean, I think um, that, but everyone has, yeah, their place. I, I agree with that. And I think, you know, um, Danielle going back to like my formative coffee experiences, probably after I was working there for about like six months, uh, I had really developed, you know, a coffee palette. I had a strong preference for what kind of coffees I liked, even though like six months before I was probably like, I would, I would drink any coffee given to me at any point and would have very few opinions about it. But now I had very strong opinions about like what was good coffee and what wasn't. And, um, and I would say, I think I said something like, oh, that coffee's burnt. And he was just like, that coffee's not burnt, Shelby. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's it's so roasty. Yeah. It's so burnt. Like, I, it's so bad. 
And he was like, okay, you and I are going to take a trip to, I'm not going to name the coffee shop, an unnamed coffee shop in Denver. And he's like, and we're going to taste the espresso there. And you're going to see what roasty coffee really is. And he made me drink like an undiluted shot of espresso (laughs) from this place. And it was so, for me, it was so bad, but he was just like, and I want you to look around. Look how busy this shop is. Look how many people are here. There is market for this. It's not what you like and you don't want to do it. But like one, the coffee that you tasted was not burnt. And two, there's nothing wrong with this coffee. It's just not what you like. And I think that, you know, um, Yeah, there, I have a lot of stories about Danielle, like, emotionally abusing me while we were working together. Like, yeah, but in, in, out of love, not, yeah. like, in a bad way, but, like, just in a in a way that, like, yeah, no, uh, that I, I, today, like, I still think about those things, and I still um, find those to be really formative experiences, you know? Like, I, I would learn to um, cup and have you know, only say what I thought was there because Danielle would sometimes switch the tin lids so that if like we flipped it Mm. and it wasn't like what I thought that coffee would be like, if I'd be like, Oh yeah, it tastes like, yeah, no, no, I meant that it tastes like this or, you know, like try to go back on my cupping notes because it wasn't the coffee I thought it was. Um, or if I thought he would like switch things with like decaf and then you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's such a great coffee. And then he'd be like, well, that's decaf. So I know that you're lying. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but to this day, like, I, if, I'm, yeah. if I don't taste something, I'm like, no, I don't taste it. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a there. good learning experience. But, awesome. Yeah, no, good good times. That's amazing. Well, Shelby, thank you so much for your time. This was an amazing, just an amazing conversation. I think there's so much to glean um, just from everything that you've shared with us. Um, be sure to check out all the amazing things Huckleberry's doing. Kiriana. Kiara. Or, not Kiriana. What's your, um, Kiara, thank you. I know. It's, it's okay. Her name is point. like spelled uh, Kiara, good luck. anyway. So I'm sorry. People always call her Kiara or Kiara, <laughs> but it's Kiara. And so, yeah, Kiara. Yeah. But. Yes, Kira. Best of luck to you in the world or the in the U.S. champs. Um, and yeah, Shelby, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, really thanks so much it. for having me.